Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today I was pleased and honored to interview Nils Jorgensen. Nils served as a firefighter for the New York City Fire Department for almost 22 years, until he was forced to retire because of the leukemia that he contracted from cleaning up Ground Zero. Nils' story is one that should be listened to. It's challenging, inspiring, sad, difficult in so many ways. But of course, I'm sure that's true of all of the heroes, the first responders, and so many other people who helped with what was the most difficult, awful, horrific day in modern American history, 9-11. I hope you listened to Nils' story. I hope you learned something from it. He shared a lot. He shared a lot of personal stories, and he opened his heart so please take a listen. Nils also served in the Army Reserves and as a police officer and EMT for several years. And Nils is the host of a podcast, 20 for 20, telling 20 heroic stories about 9-11 for the 20th anniversary. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Thank you so much for joining me today, and thank you for your service of uh, nearly 22 years as a firefighter in the New York City Fire Department. It's an honor for me to be able to interview someone who put their life on the line to save others over so many years. I was just going to say, Jason, thank you very much, sir. It's it's an honor and uh, to be here today. And uh, I was very proud to serve uh, the United States Army Reserve and New York Army National Guard for eight years, uh, the New York City EMS for a brief few months, and followed up by almost two years in the New York City Police Department uh, prior to my fire department service. So I've proudly served all of those organizations and we gladly go back in a minute, uh, but thank you very much for having me. You were off duty on 9-11, that just horrific, absolutely horrific morning for, for New York City, for the country, really for the world. Can you share with us your story from that morning, a morning that effectively changed the course of history for just about everybody on the planet? Yes, sir. Uh, I was uh, working as an oil truck driver. Um, as you know, being a guy from New York, it's very expensive uh, to live there. So most of us have two to three jobs. Uh, those of us who work in the uh, first responder world. And that particular morning I was driving an oil truck for Clement fuel on the Northern end of Staten Island. And, um, it was a very warm, beautiful, bright day, about 80 degrees. Uh, and, uh, first day back to deliver an oil for the season to get prepped. And I heard, uh, on, 1010 winds radio that a, a plane had struck the trade center and immediately thought, okay, it's probably just a Learjet maybe flew a little bit off of his course to get a picture of the towers. Uh, you know, the winds down in that area are very, very vicious. So it, it just, to me, it was just an accident and our on duty platoon would handle it. Um, they don't normally want us running in off duty because you know, the standing platoon on duty is about 2,500 guys responding citywide. So I, I took a look. Uh, you could see directly over the harbor, and it looked terrible. And I just said, you know, those guys are going to have a bad day at work. And um, continued on and kept the news on. 
And shortly thereafter, I realized then the second plane had hit, and I turned around and saw the immediate after of it. And I raced back to the yard, and I told my boss I had to go. We were under attack, and I, I raced into Brooklyn. Um, and we're, we have a situation called a, a recall, which is mandatory obligation for all city first responders, police, fire, EMS, to report to their duty stations for, for a large and uh, calamitous event. So I was heading into my firehouse, and my wife got me on the phone, and she said, where are you going to go? And my dad was an FDMY veteran, and he always would say, if there's a recall, you go to your firehouse, you follow your orders. And I was doubting it for a second. I'm saying, wow, there's no traffic today. I can fly right in and get to the, get to the, the very least, get to the tunnel and then get across. But I had no gear. So I, I made this decision that it would be prudent to go to the firehouse, get some gear, uh, check in with command, and, and get my following orders, which I did. And uh, I was the first guy in. Um, my company that day was lateral company 114, which is a beautiful old building at the time from 1895 and just standalone brick, red brick building. And as I got in the doors, I heard the alarm, the dispatch alarm beeping and the truck was gone. And my on-duty crew, my friends, uh, Dennis Oberg, the Lieutenant in command and my five other friends were on that truck racing toward Brooklyn, uh, excuse me, racing from Brooklyn towards Manhattan. So I called into command, and a battalion commander told us to get 12 men, commandeer a city bus, and get over to Manhattan, which we started to do. Um, my lieutenant, uh, my platoon lieutenant at the time was Brian Gorman, and he came in, took command, and got everyone signed in. Uh, we salvaged as many tools as we could possibly find uh, in the basement of the firehouse, mostly uh, older pieces of equipment used for spare parts, and um, we commandeered a city bus, and a gentleman named John was kind enough to stay with us. We asked the passengers to leave. They had no idea what was going on. We explained that we were under attack, and unless they wanted to come with us to get off the bus, which they did. We continued down 4th Avenue, um, picking up two uh, off-duty platoons of guys from uh, Engine Company 201, Engine 239. And as we got to the Brooklyn Bridge, the second time, Hour had come down. Um, first one had gone down while we were in the firehouse mustering up. And uh, we realized at that point that we might have just lost our friends from 114 and hundreds of other colleagues throughout the city. And as we came across the bridge, we it became even more apparent that we've now lost many of our friends. And um, the strange irony is about an hour earlier, there's an iconic photo of Ladder Company 118 FDMY and they're quartered just at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge on the Brooklyn side. And there's a photo of them heading over to uh, the bridge with the towers burning in the background. And um, those men died that day. They, they never came back. So as we got in, uh, it was a chaotic scene. It was as if we were at war. We were waiting our orders. It was completely dust and just uh, it was as if we were in a movie, a zombie movie. And at that, that, that point, uh, there was fighter jets screaming overhead, uh, passing by every three to five minutes, just making screeching turns right over the Brooklyn Bridge and uh, just strafing, strafing what was once the towers for security and safety because there was reports that there were other aircraft inbound to, uh, to kill more of us. And we proceeded through our search duties. Um, it, was, it was painful. It was uh, very emotionally painful because we knew we were looking for so many people that were gone. 
and towards the end of the the night into the following morning, I remember being off to the side. Um, there was a full blown rescue going on for the police officers from the Port Authority, who, luckily enough, were the last survivors pulled from the wreckage. And um, I was off to the side from with a firefighter from my dad's old command, Ladder One Seventy Two, and he said, "Hey, kid, what do you hear?" And I could hear the what's left of the uh, building, the, the pulverized cement and dust and just kept coming down, almost sounded like sands in a desert or at a beach collapsing and hissing of pipes, water pipes, gas pipes. And uh, aside that, we found a woman's shoe and a woman's pocketbook. And he said, what do you hear? I said, well, I hear these noises. He goes, no, but what else? Where's the screams for help? What do you hear? And I said, I hear nothing. And um, he said, kid, every, everyone's dead. No one else is coming out of here but those cops. And um, unfortunately, he was, he was correct. And um, the strange thing was, is where are the people attached to the, the shoe and the handbag? And um, unfortunately, it came to the point where we didn't find many whole bodies. It was mostly human remains, which we tried to very, with dignity and respect, collect and uh, wrap in the American flag and process out in, in a somber ceremony every time someone was found. And... Um, Later on that morning, we were just physically incapacitated. We couldn't breathe. We couldn't see. It felt like you uh, swallowed a box of razor blades. And our lieutenant decided we'd go back to the firehouse. Uh, we took another bus back through the battery tunnel this time. And uh, we were going to collect our, get some more gear and uh, get cleaned up, get our eyes flushed out, get some oxygen and uh, head back a couple hours later. And the bus dropped us off at a specific location. And we had to walk up a quarter, half mile to the firehouse up a hill and none of us could breathe. And, um, one of the older firemen, Danny, one of the senior men, he said, oh, we're all, we're all dead. And I said, no, Dan, oh, we, we made it, we made it out. Um, and he said, no, you don't understand. He said, do you feel how you feel right now? I said, yeah, I feel like I'm dying. He said, exactly. We're all going to die from what we breathed in. And strange enough, um, out of those 20 guys in that crew, uh, 10 of us now have cancers, uh, very severe. Some guys, multiple cancers. Uh, one gentleman has had five bouts of cancer, another gentleman, three. Uh, and now we've lost more folks from 9-11 related illnesses than we did. Uh, we lost 2,977 souls that morning. And we've now surpassed 3,000 people from illnesses. So, so Danny was right. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of us that are now succumbing to those illnesses. Miles, I don't think people really understand that so many of you who helped at Ground Zero, those of you who went to help, to rescue, to save, to organize, to comfort, you did tremendous damage to your health with what you breathed in. Tell us what happened to you. Well, Jason, I um, wasn't feeling right for a long time. Uh, I never did feel the way I said did on uh, September 10th of one. And, you know, firefighting is a very physical job. It's much like being an athlete, um, but with much worse surroundings, much more dangerous surroundings and uh, environments. But I knew, I knew early on it just wasn't right. And probably in about 08, 09, I, uh, I was complaining to my doctor, who was also a doctor within the department, that, you know, something was way wrong. And um, unfortunately, what happened was there was a stigma attached to guys. If, if you went to seek counseling, um, you know, I lost my childhood best friend, John Sharp, uh, that morning from Engine 201. And uh, our wives wound up having babies in May of 02. 
um, our third child each. And John never got to hold his beautiful son. And three days later, I got to hold my beautiful Catherine. So there was massive guilt with that. There was massive guilt with walking away from that that large murder scene, that huge cemetery uh, in Lower Manhattan. And in order to keep going and to positively be productive as a father, as a firefighter, as a citizen, many of us sought out counseling just to talk it out and and find out, hey, am I am I normal thinking this way? You know, this huge uh, grief, walking around sad and you know angry at times and, and full of guilt. So when you went for that counseling, they would put a C on your medical folder, which meant you were in counseling. So they'd automatically assume that everything you complained of was linked to either emotional situations, PTSD or, or alcoholism. And, um, you know, it was kind of sad because they would sort of look at you in a different way immediately. But I knew it wasn't that. I was doing okay. Um, but I wasn't physically feeling well. 2010, I went for a medical, but I was, uh, I was relieved of my command for a short while because sometimes I have a, uh, a big mouth and I, I say what I believe in. And I, uh, I ended up in a little bit of a, a verbal dispute with an upper-level supervisor. And um, in theory, I was correct. My tactics, I guess, could be considered correct. But uh, he got his... He got his Italian up and I got my Irish up and we got into a little bit of a Gaelic and Gallic battle and uh, I lost and I lost my command. But during that six months in what we call bad lieutenant camp, and there's no ill will toward that chief. He's a friend and, uh, you know, we said our peace, right? And, but I was given a medical, but I was never given the results until a year later by someone. And uh, in 2010, I had the signs of cancer. Flash forward to 2011, uh, I went for a department medical, which was now protocol after 9-11. Once a year, you'd get a full medical because now so many guys were starting to come down with illnesses. Uh, in 05, 06, 07, it started to happen. And there was still a lot of denial by the administration because now it was running into money. Who's paying for this? So the first, the first few gentlemen who succumbed to illnesses, they were not deemed 9-11 related but in theory they were so 2011 my blood's come back horrifically wrong i have no platelets which is your blood clatter and in blood cancer world means something is very wrong so i was pulled off the truck and told that i could bleed to death at any moment because i had no platelets i could not clot so i asked to see the doctor that morning but that was a friday morning and no one wanted to seem to stick around and you know, they wanted to head out to the Hamptons and sometimes doctors do that, right? Good doctors don't, they stay behind for the patients. Uh, so I was told to come in the following Monday and uh, I guess I made the mistake of asking a few medical people, what does this look like? Because I had a copy of my blood work and they all went, oh, that's not good. Get to the hospital. And I said, no, I'm going to wait on my doc. So I went into Fire Farm Medical and the first doctor is a bit of a not a nice guy, I'd say. And uh, he tilted his hand back as if mimicking drinking some alcohol. And he said, oh, Lieutenant, busy summer? Because I showed him my blood work. And I said, Doc, my spleen looks like it's a, a Rawlings football. It's sticking out. And he goes, yeah, you know what that's from, right? I said, blood cancer? Oh, you're another WebMD. He goes, that's probably from booze. 
And I got really pissed off. And I said, excuse me, sir. I said, are you stereotyping me because I'm Irish and Scandinavian and we're known to enjoy an adult beverage or two? And he got real nasty. And I, I laced into the guy and the XO of the medical division came in with another doctor and they wanted to know what was going on. And I said, well, your colleague here has no idea what he's doing. And the second doctor took a look at my uh, medical jacket, so to speak. And she looked horrified and she looked at the other doctor like, do you have any idea what you're doing? She took me to the side. She said, you need to get to your own doctor. And she was aware of who my doctor was and get this looked at. It's serious. Next day I went, saw that doctor right away. Oh, the drinking, the PTSD, the this. I said, ma'am, I don't have those issues. Something is wrong. Okay, go to the Staten Island Cancer Institute and get a workup. Well, they wouldn't fit me in for three weeks. But I went for a sonogram the following morning, and it said my spleen was about to explode. But the doctor never chose to tell me that or never saw that. I'm not sure exactly what happened. So I waited out the three weeks, but I went to the fire department clinic again to find out a differential diagnosis of what the hell was wrong with me. And my doctor was gone for the day at 1130 in the morning, but I had a 12 o'clock appointment. And I was waiting, and they... I called her driver. I said, where are you? And I said, well, we're at lunch. We're gone for the day. I said, well, I'm dying and no one is telling me what's going on. And he went, oh, shit, we'll be back. Well, they showed up about two and a half hours later. And by that time, I was just about unconscious on the floor. And the doctor who had the duty that day was kind enough to code me and uh, basically had uh, three ambulance units show up because they knew it was bad. And this one wonderful paramedic that I work the streets with, he's a six foot eight tall African-American guy, and he's a street doctor. He had 25 years experience at that point. And he remembered me from when we would cut people out of cars and we'd hand this wrecked body over to this incredible man of medicine who would bring them back to life. And he said, hey, 114, haven't seen you in a long time. I said, yeah, we call the medics doc because you know, I was in the army. That's what you call them. And I said, yeah, I promoted out. I've been down the other side of Brooklyn, and now I'm over in the 80 truck at Staten Island. And, and he goes, wow, man, you're looking real red today. He goes, you're not one of those Rockaway Beach dudes who uh, go surfing, right? I said, hey, Doc, I'm too fat to fly the surfboard, bro. And, and he started laughing, and I handed him my paperwork, my jacket, and he went, oh, holy shit. why aren't you in the hospital? And I just started crying. I said, Doc, I don't know. I've been asking these people for weeks to tell me what's going on. So in struts the doctor, and they get into a little war of words. And she basically said to the medic, well, where did you go to medical school? And he said, the streets of New York. And he overrode her, and he raced me up to Brooklyn Methodist Hospital. And he saved my life. They drilled into my hip, and... They basically told me from the get-go, you're very, very sick. You're dying. We're going to do our best to save you. We're not even sure what it is just yet. And two days later, a team of doctors walked in, and I said, oh, oh, this is bad. It's sort of like when you see a police car on the side of the road. One cop car, it's probably a ticket. Three cop cars, someone going to jail. Well, I was going to jail that night because there were six doctors. And they told me what it was, and they said, you have a very, very rare and advanced form of leukemia. It's called hairy cell leukemia. And at the time, the only way to, to stave it off, to put it into remission, because there's technically no cure, 
is to hit you up with two and a half years worth of chemotherapy in seven days. They burn out your bone marrow. The bags of chemo are about 14 inches high. And once one of them finishes, they hook you up to another and another and another. And that's basically what I was told had to happen. And I said, well, what's the other option? And they said, there isn't. And I said, well, where am I? And they said, well, organ cancers are stage one through four and then you die. Leukemias are like a car riding on a road and they get to a cliff and they go over the cliff. It's just a kind of continuous momentum that doesn't stop. I said, well, where's my car? And they said, well, the first two wheels are off the cliff and uh, the other two are just about hinging to go behind it. And I said, okay, then let's get started. And they had to find a drug. It was very, very rare. Uh, You know, they don't see this cancer very often. There's only 500 cases in all of North America a year. And I was the seventh 9-11 responder in six months in 2011 to come down with it. And two of the gentlemen had already died from the treatment because it's so vicious. So the oncology team knew right away there was a problem. We have a little bit of a mini, I guess you want to call it epidemic, right? Word that goes around a lot now. And um, they knew there was a problem. So commissioner walked in a couple of days later because there was a lot of commotion when I went down at headquarters wanting to know if the department doctor was there yet. And I said, no, sir, tell her don't waste her time. I have a doctor that knows what they're doing now. I don't, I don't need them. And one of her associates walked in the next day and wanted to know why I was occupying a cancer bed for an anxiety attack and alcohol abuse. And I truly thought it was an episode from the old show, uh, Twilight Zone. I said, this can't be happening. And I proceeded to inform that doctor. He had no idea what he's talking about to please look at my folder. And then I, uh, with a very Irish tone to it, dispatched him from my room and told him to get out. And they started the treatment that day. And basically what my, my nurse, my lifesaver, Mike Nunez said, and my other nurse, Alta Gracia was, this is going to feel like you're burning to death from the inside out. The minute we hit you, um, Once they had to actually wear a hazmat suit, Mike had to wear a hazmat suit to start me on the IV because it's so caustic. It'll burn anything in its path on the outside. But when it's on the inside, the only thing it'll burn out is blood cells, which is very strange. So so when he started the IV, it dripped onto the tube and started melting the plastic tube and it smoked. And I panicked and I said, "You, you can't put this in my body. And he said, I'm sorry, let me start over. He said, I'll get it right this time. But he said, if you don't take this, you're dead. You have 48 hours to live. Do you understand? And I had three beautiful young kids and a beautiful wife, beautiful family. And I said, okay, I guess I have no choice. He said, if you want to see them and you want to watch them grow up, he goes, there's a real good chance we're going to get you into remission. And I said, okay, Mike. And he started it up. And the minute that IV hit the vein and got in there, I felt like, it was almost when you do drink some alcohol and you have a whiskey shot and it starts to burn as it goes down. Well, this started to burn as it went in and it burned severely and it went up my arm and up my shoulder and across my neck and into my head and across my other side of my body and all through my body within 30 seconds. And I felt like I was burning to death from the inside out. And, um, I've had the unfortunate occurrence in my career to be trapped a couple times to know what it's like to be burning. And it's, it's, it's vicious. Uh, and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm actually now living this in order to try to survive. I didn't want to take pain meds because of personal feelings about it. People I've loved, who I've seen succumb to them. 
So I just said, I'll take the pain. And uh, it was vicious. And on the first night, I saw visions of everyone that I loved who had passed. It was just quick, quick visions. And the last one was my beautiful mother-in-law who had passed six months before me. And this lovely Irish woman who just had the most beautiful smile. And I know most guys have mother-in-law issues. You know, it's a tough thing. My mother-in-law is one of my best friends. She used to call me her boyfriend. We had this Irish connection. We like to talk. We like to laugh. We like to let people know we love them. And she just looked at me and she said, hi, my boyfriend. And I said, Nan, Nan, take me. I'm ready to go home. And she said, no, not yet, my boyfriend. He's not ready for you. You have work to do. You go back to that family and you do some good. And she started to giggle and she faded away. And I was actually trying to chase her. You know, I couldn't get out of bed, but I was grabbing. And that night there was some violent, violent summer storms in New York. And, I, and it, was, it was a wild night. It was vicious. Of physically, mentally, this, this stuff was just burning through my body, killing me. And one of my doctors was an atheist, and she didn't believe in any faith. She thought faith is nonsense. So she said, I heard you were very restless. Tell me what was going on. So I, I told her the, the story about my mother-in-law. So about a half an hour later, this, this, this man walks in, and um, he, was, he was a rabbi. Because I ran into Borough Park, Brooklyn, uh, as my second response area, and we we ran into the Hasidic community. So he, I was wearing my one fourteen ball cap, and he said, "Oh, one fourteen, tally ho!" And I said, "Yeah, how are you?" And he said, "I'm Doctor So and So." And I, I I said, "Oh, you you from Borough Park? Yes, I know. You know, I know you guys. You run in with one forty eight. One forty eight was my father in law's old truck." And uh, anyway. I said, well, why are you here? He says, well, I'm, I'm a psychiatrist. And they said, you, you're having some issues. So tell me what's going on. So I told him the entire story, and he started to laugh. And I says, Doc, you, you, am I okay? He says, yeah, you're fine. And I says, but, but why are you here then? He says, because your doctor doesn't believe like we do. He said, my friend, you and I, we belong to the same corporation of God. We work in different departments, but we, we serve him. And he said, you did see your mother-in-law and she pushed you back. He said, I've experienced this hundreds of times in my career. He was, you know, he was doing this for 40 years. He said, you're fine. He says, but take that message and get strong on it and get healed on it. And he said, so what else you want to do? I said, well, what do you mean, doc? He says, well, they're paying me for an hour. It's only been 20 minutes. So we watched the Yankee game for 40 minutes. <laughs> and uh, I got through the treatment. It was vicious. Uh, worst, worst 26 days of my life in the hospital. And um, Thanksgiving of 2011, I got the great news that uh, I was considered in a remission. But that followed up from the bad news a couple of weeks prior that my career was over and I was being retired because you cannot stay on the FDNY with over 20 years of service with cancer. So they didn't give me an option. They kicked me to the curb. And I begged this other doctor who who took my case on and the kicker the, to go back to how vicious the treat, the treatment was the, the, the emotional treatment. My doctor showed up on the eighth day of my confinement in the hospital and she walked in with no idea what was wrong with me and said, so what is it that's wrong with you today, Lieutenant? And I just about lost my mind. I said, this has got to be a setup. This is, has to be someone just playing a joke. And she was dead serious. And I said, ma'am, do me a favor. Look at my folder. And you'll see what's wrong with me. And I said, I have an incurable leukemia and I have less than a 50-50 shot of getting out of here. 
And she said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And I said, and it wasn't even sincere. And I said, yes, yeah, so am I now. Just, just get out of here. And I won't use the language I used. And she, excuse me? Now, she's considered one, you know, like a staff chief in the department. I said, ma'am, please do me a favor. Leave my room. You're fired. You're incompetent. You are not my doctor anymore. I have doctors who are going to save my life. And our relationship from that point was finished. And it caused me some grief in any career I might have had left. But it didn't matter at that point. I was going to say what I was going to say because I was basically thrown to the side for a few years as if I didn't count. And I can tell you one thing, Jason, that we would never, ever do in the FDMY and the NYPD and the United States military services and the EMS services is throw someone aside. It's okay. I'm past it. I'm past the anger, which lasted for a while. Losing a job was, was horrible. It was like suffering a death because that was my priesthood. You know, I'm an Irish Catholic kid and my dad, my dad did 34 years in the department. So after this disappointment with how I was treated with the department, I was basically retired off and thrown out in January of 2012. And I was lost. It was a snowy day and I'm walking my rescue Greyhound Katie and I'm going, well, okay, what are we going to do now? And she's like, we're going to go on a lot more walks. And that was it. My, my career was over. My life of service to the public was over. And I didn't know what I was going to do because they train you in everything except how to retire. And now I was retired and untrained in it. Well, thank you for sharing that frightening, chilling story. Um, thank God you're okay now and everything is in remission. I guess what you shared is also troubling, right? You know, the, the treatment of uh, heroes such as yourself is very troubling to me. I hope since then the fire department and emergency services have looked into how they treat people both medically and, and uh, the way you describe being kicked to the curb. And I hope the policies have changed. But uh, I suspect that uh, that's maybe wishful thinking. You know, Jason, thankfully they have changed for the better, but only because of, of people who were unrelenting in their fight to, to not let it continue the way it was, the status quo of the very early 2000s. And really the man at the forefront is, is John Field from the Feel Good Foundation. And John was, was a, a demolition expert, uh, iron worker, who basically lost half of his foot in the process of cutting these massive pieces of steel so we could go in and retrieve the remains. And within the first week, John, John was severely injured and spent six months in the hospital after it with sepsis and, and was greeted with a thank you from the system when he got out of the hospital with $600,000 in unpaid medical bills and nobody wanted to pay them. So, so John took it upon himself with um, a, his army, as we call it, the feel-good army, and uh, a detective named James Zadroga, who, who was considered our first official death from 9-11, New York City police detective, who spent months of his life at the landfill trying to identify, crawling through the piles that were dumped by trucks of debris, which was intermingled, unfortunately, with human remains, and Jimmy spent months of his life sifting through that, only to come down with a fatal lung disease, which at the end of his life was deemed an opiate overdose because he was instructed by his doctors to grind up his pain pills and ingest them and drink them and snort them for immediate relief. And they decided that they were going to try to deem his death from because his breathing stopped subsequently, even his lungs were just destroyed, and they tried to term it an opiate overdose, so he would not be given a death benefit. 
And Jimmy's father was a retired police chief, and he went on a mission with John Field to change this. And they stormed through the halls of Washington, D.C., through Congress and the Senate. And I was blessed enough to be there on a couple missions with them. But John went on over 100. And it was pitiful to see our supposed leaders running away when they saw John and Chief Zadroga and the late firefighter Ray Pfeiffer, who went with terminal cancer, and the late detective, NYPD detective Luis Alvarez, who left hospice on multiple occasions to shame these people into finally giving us the legislation that now covers us. So by the grace of God and the tenacity of these heroes, I no longer have to worry about a medical bill. But the cruel, you know, the, the, the salt on my wound was six months after getting out of the hospital, I was being sued for $150,000. And my little beautiful 9-11 miracle, Kathy, who, Catherine, who's, you know, now 19, and at the time was about nine. And she, she saw a gentleman taking pictures of her and her friend as they sat on the front steps of my house. And I raced across the street and I grabbed the gentleman and he identified himself. And I said, do me if he told me, he said, there's a lien on your house. There's an unpaid medical bill. I'm just a private investigator. And I said, that's okay, sir. Wait till my children are in the house. You take all the pictures you want. Do not step in my front yard. And that was the cruelness that responders were facing in the thousands in, in the earlier years until John Feel got us covered with the actor John Stewart, who, who jumped in with John to shame these politicians who were so fast to line up on 9-12 and 9-13 and 9-14 and through the, the fall and winter of 01 to catch pictures with responders with the hashtag never forget heroes, our heroes, American heroes. That all went away quickly, Jason. But thank God, thank God, yes, it has changed because of John Field. That's appalling. Embarrassing, really. So uh, thank you uh, to John Field and John Stewart and whoever else helped in that uh, critical crusade. Niles, you, you speak about your dad often. I myself lost my father about six weeks ago. He was 92. I lost my mom about 18 years ago. I love hearing about other people's parents. Could you tell me a bit about your dad? Well, Jason, first, my prayers. Um, I'm sure they had a tremendous impact in your successful life. And I know they're in a better place right now. Uh, I'm blessed to still have my parents. Um, my dad's 82 and my mom is going to be 75. And my dad is a, uh, you know, my, both my parents are an American success story. You know, my mom got off a plane from Ireland at 16 years old with just a suitcase and an address of where to meet her sisters who had already emigrated. And, and she, she met my, my wonderful father, who, who was the son of a Danish immigrant, Grandpa Nels, my namesake, and, and my, uh, my grandma, who ended up an orphan, and her parents had come from Ireland literally on a boat. So my dad and my mom are very proud, humble, simple people that cherish this beautiful thing that is America and the opportunities that they've been granted. So my father was my guiding force in my life. And I went to the firehouse at five years old to see him. My mom drove us down. And, you know, uh, here I walk into this building that smells like smoke and diesel fuel and tires and you know, just, just like uh, this big garage. And all of a sudden, there's these giants with mustaches walking around. And there's my dad you know, giving me a hug. And I'm going, man, this is, you know, when I'm on the truck and they're showing me around and putting a helmet on, you know, giving me a fire helmet to wear. 
Then they sneak me in the kitchen and they're stuffing me up with ice cream and cookies and say, don't tell your mother. And, and I look around and all these giants with mustaches are laughing and enjoying each other's friendship. And then, you know, they get a call and they jump on this huge truck and my mom's holding my hand off to the side and they take off and there's my father waving at me and I'm going, my dad's Superman. I'm five, but I'm going to be Superman once I grow my cape. And that was it for me, Jason. I, I, I followed this man's lead. And unfortunately, in 1978, he got a little sidetracked. But the essence of my dad, it didn't slow him down a bit. And my dad was diagnosed with uh, end-stage non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And unfortunately, it, it raced through him, and it was beating him. And they sent him home to die. And one of his doctors was very cutting edge, and she called him up, and she said, Paul, we have this new drug. We want you to be a test pilot. It's your only chance. And in his hard Brooklyn accent, I heard, remember hearing him, hey, Doc, I'm not a pilot. I'm a fireman. Now, he was an air crash rescue guy in the Air Force, but he never flew the plane. And he said, whatever we have to do, Doc. So that week, they started him. And every Thursday, every alternate Thursday for four and a half years, my father, who was since transferred to an office for desk duty because he can't fight fires on, on chemo and, on, you know, he would go and go to work at four in the morning and take the Staten Island train to the Staten Island ferry to the New York City subway, two and a half hours each way to downtown Brooklyn and two and a half hours back. And on chemo days, on alternate Thursdays, he could have taken a pass and just stayed home. His chief loved him. My dad was a really good worker. And he said, no, nah, chief, you're paying me. I'm going to come in. And at noon, he'd leave. Instead of going to lunch, he'd go to go to his cancer treatment. And he'd take that two-and-a-half-hour commute. And my mom would pick him up at the rail station, and they would go to the chemo center. And within two hours, he'd be violently ill, laying in a darkened room and just vomiting and vomiting and vomiting. He couldn't even take water. And I would just stay there, and I would I would clean his face, clean the vomit away. So he just couldn't keep ingesting it. And I'd kneel on the end of his bed and I'd cry and I'd pray because uh, I just lost my grandfather, who was my best friend. Grandpa Nils, you know, I, I hated my name as a kid, but now I love it because it's, it's special. And uh, Grandpa Nils was a tortured guy. He left home at 12 years old to be an apprentice baker in Denmark. And, and we believe he might've been a victim of abuse and, and, you know, he he was tormented and unfortunately he took that torment out on on his wife my grandma and my father and my father's three sisters but he made up for it in the end of his life and he became this kind sweet man who was seeking forgiveness and i prayed that my dad wouldn't end up like my grandpa and i prayed and i prayed so hard and so many hours and my dad's still here he's 82 He's had six heart operations, four cancers. He looks better than I do. <laughs> and he couldn't tell me he loved me until I got on the fire department, right? He just, you know, he came from a different time. And after my first night tour of duty, I called him up. I was all excited. You know, I caught my first fire. And he said, how you like it, kid? I said, Dad, I love it. I love it. This is my priesthood. I can't, I, I just, I want to do 40 years on a department. And I said, I love you, Pop. And he said, yeah, thanks, kid. I said, you can say it. And now he was my brother, firefighter. I said, you could say it, brother. And he said, yeah, I love you, kid. And then he topped it off with keep low. And keep low is an expression in the fire department, which means stay down really low below the flames so you don't get burned and you don't get hurt. And now every time I talk to him every night, 
He says, I love you, kid. Keep low. And I said, I love you too, old timer, because now he's the old timer. He's the retired older guy. And I said, keep low. And I'm so blessed. And my Irish mother, she puts on a good face. She's fighting Parkinson's, and you would never know it. And in their condo development in Staten Island, she's just the angel of mercy, helping everybody but herself. And I look at the lessons they've taught me to put other people first, to be selfless in a selfish society, and you will always come out on the right side of it. And they're just such inspiration, such inspirational role models. And I've tried, my wife and I have tried with our own three beautiful children to instill that in them. And again, Jason, I don't want to preach. I don't want to be on a stump, but I truly believe that if America, everyone talks about this reset that people want. Well, the reset we need is people taking responsibility, loving their children, guiding their children, and teaching their children. And if we can grasp that concept, we're going to really do well. But unfortunately, it's fading away. And, you know, folks like you and I are now in the minority who can say that we had these beautiful people that loved us, nurtured us, and raised us. So I thank God I have these beautiful people still in my life. Thank you for sharing those very personal words. And I, I wish both your parents continued health and, and pride in you. Let me, uh, let me close out by asking about your wife. I'm blessed to have an amazing wife. And your wife seems to have been through a lot as a result of uh, your very challenging and scary career. Can you share some, uh, some thoughts about your wife as well? Yes, my beautiful wife, Annie. Uh, who claims to be five foot two and three quarters, but uh, if she's five foot two, she's a lot. <laughs> and uh, she is a wonderful, patient, uh, beautiful person. She's more beautiful on the inside than she's out, and she's a very pretty woman. Um, there's many, many times over our 30 years of marriage where she should have just discarded me and left me at the curb with the garbage because uh, I've been broken. I've been. 9-11 somewhat, I wouldn't say I broke, but I was fractured and cancer fractured that fissure even more in my soul. It, it was, she's put up with a lot of stuff and because she believed in me, because we were friends. And I realize it now that that's the most important thing is to be friends with your spouse, your significant other. And my wife never had an easy life. Her, her father was a city fireman and he, he broke his back horribly uh, with 10 years of service, you know, back in 1975. And my wife was only six years old. And my beautiful mother-in-law, mother of five children, would then babysit six, seven, ten more to make ends meet. And my wife was taught, you know, because my father-in-law was hospitalized many, many times for very long periods of time with his horrible injuries. And my mother-in-law taught my wife just how to just be that rock, you know, be that, that guide of the family, I guess. And now, you know, we chose, my wife had a career and, you know, she was a uh, legal assistant, executive assistant, you know, to an attorney in a big firm. And um, she had a great career and she gave it up after nine, 10 years to raise our children and stay at home because we chose to do that. Um, we, we looked back on our moms who did the same thing and we wanted to mimic them. We felt that as their children, we prospered better with moms being in the house. And, and I don't begrudge anyone who does otherwise. So I took it upon myself to work three jobs and my wife took it upon herself to be completely devoted to my three beautiful kids who are now 
19, 21, and 24, and well on their way to success. But most of that, most of their path of success has to do with my wife being extremely strict, not rigid, extremely fair, but extremely intelligent in how she guided them. So we're going to be married 30 years next week, and today's her birthday. Happy birthday, Annie. Happy and, birthday, uh, Annie. She, uh, she's just a wonderful soul. And, um, you know, I call her my lamb, and, and that's almost like a, a mockery of what she is. She's really a lion. But she comes off to people like this gentle, sweet lamb, and she is. But when she needs to turn into that lion and fight for her family and, and her, you know, protect them, Oh man, look out! You know that that five foot two and three quarters uh, is going to come storming at you, <laughs> and uh, she's no joke. But yeah, and you know, having been the daughter of a firefighter and 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 knowing the sacrifice and knowing the heartache that comes with that sacrifice, sometimes she totally got my circumstances. Um, I think many other ladies might have not understood it and just said, I-, "I can't do this anymore," you know. And the fact that my father was was a fireman, so my wife's life was immersed amongst the fire department culture. You know, we have a very strange, different subculture, but to us, it's not strange. It's, it's our life. So she came from that. She understood that and she continued on with that. So yeah, that was, that was our salvation. Um, but just I'm blessed beyond. And I hope we have another 30 years together. You know, she dreams of, uh, walking the beach in Florida one day, hand in hand with our little grandkids. And we don't have any grandchildren as of yet. Um, no pressure on my kids, but would be nice. Uh, <laughs> you hear that, yeah, guys? You hear that? No pressure. <laughs> yeah, that, that's our dream. That's our dream. So, uh, but you know, God, God granted us and blessed us with three wonderful, wonderful children: Emily, Paul, and Catherine. And um, you know, my my Emily, my fiery redhead, is now a nurse. She's an emergency room nurse and a nurse paramedic on nine one one ambulance. And she said it was because of the nursing care I received in Methodist. So Mike Nunez and Alta Gracia, thank you. You inspired my beautiful young daughter to be you, to be a, a healer and a protector. And she is. And I'm so proud of her and proud of my son who wants to be a pilot and my little cat who wants to be a teacher. Just great people. Well, thank you. Thank you. And thank you to Annie, Emily, Paul, and Catherine for your sacrifice, for everything you've done. And uh, thank you so much for opening your heart and sharing your stories with us today. Thanks, Jason. And if I could just plug one more, uh, one more thing. Um, I'm presently involved in a, a charity podcast uh, to, to basically spread the history of 9-11 and the heroes that responded. Unfortunately, many of those have passed on. And uh, one, one unfortunate thing we're noticing in society is 9-11 is not being taught in the schools. So we went on a little bit of a mission. Um, there's a sponsor company called Iron Light labs and iron light was kind enough to sponsor this charity and allow me the time to to basically give uh audio podcasts interviewing some of these beautiful people that are affiliated with 9-11 um john john feel was one of our participants we had uh, frank siller from the tunnel to towers foundation which helps thousands and thousands of, of injured and killed soldiers and responders families uh we have this wonderful actor, Robert John Burke, who speaks of his two best friends, Captain Patrick Brown of Ladder Three, and our Irish chaplain, Irish Catholic chaplain, Father Michael Judge, who both tragically died the morning of 9-11. So we'd ask your folks if they wouldn't mind maybe giving us a listen. Um, 
it's all again for charity and it's called the 2420 podcast.com uh, iron light labs is a sponsor site and if you could be kind enough to give us a listen and give us a good rating and pass it on to five friends uh that would really be helpful um we just don't want these beautiful folk stories forgotten and unfortunately right now in half the school districts in the united states there is no curriculum for 9 11 and in many districts it's actually considered offensive material and will not be taught wow uh well i'll certainly take a listen i hope my my listeners do as well and uh, the last statement you made is shocking that it wouldn't be taught. It should be taught. It must be taught. So um, thank you for sharing those words as well. Thank you, Jason. And it's it's been an honor to, to get an interview from you. And I thank you for all you've done for our country and just appreciate you not forgetting my, uh, my brave, beautiful friends. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat brought to you by Newsweek. What an interview. Nils really opened up his heart and his soul shared with us some courageous uh, stories, some stories about his family, some troubling stories about how the first responders and some other heroes were treated. These are American heroes who helped our country and the great city of New York pick up the pieces for one of the most horrific, awful days in American history in modern times. I learned from it, I was inspired by it, and I'm grateful for Nils for opening up his heart and sharing his time and his stories with us. If you found this podcast interesting and informative, please do share it and our other podcasts with your friends and family. You can listen to The Diplomat on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. We have some great guests coming up in the coming weeks. Until next time, I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. One. Two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.